Hello, college football fans, and welcome to episode 39 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello there, fans. All right. Yes, uh, I'm back in Los Angeles. Uh, had to come back after the holidays were over, so no in-person podcast this week. Uh, but as we promised last time, we're going to be talking about the national championship game and all the fun, exciting Stuff that came from that, the implications it has on the wider college football sphere, as well as some exciting developments that have occurred in the Nebraska world as well. Um, yes. Yes. An exciting topic. <laughs> That's right. All right. So uh, diving into the championship game to start with, the Clemson-Alabama uh, game. Of course, Clemson ended up winning the game 35-31. Uh, I was at a, uh, a little local bar, uh, missed some of the first quarter, and uh, made it there about halfway into the second uh, so I missed some of Alabama's dominance early um, but I watched the whole game after that there were a bunch of Clemson fans in the bar so it was a lot of fun to see it with them and I was lucky because I never had the chance to do this in the past to be uh, in Vegas uh, during the national championship game so got to watch a, a major sporting event uh, uh, through the eyes of uh, someone at, the, at a, a Vegas sports book which was quite interesting. A lot of fun uh, to, to experience that, the ups and downs, especially in that fourth quarter, uh, the emotions of the room, as well as just being able to have fun, uh, have, a, have a cold one while I watched the game uh, with a, a bunch of strangers, but they all seemed like friends during that. <laughs> I'm curious, were there? would you say there was more Bama or Clemson fans? It seemed like there were more people rooting for Clemson, so I think there was more, more money on Clemson, uh, at least in that room. And I was uh, happened to be over at the MGM Grand uh, for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what's funny is that you texted me and asked if I want to put down money, and I put some down on, on Clemson. I put it down the under on the game. Uh, and you, I guess, put it on the over. And so Yes, I, I chose winning. Alabama, and you won. <laughs> I was, and I, but I thought, I thought I was the genius uh, after that first quarter because uh, in, in, in evaluating the game, I mean, I, I, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher to me, and obviously I don't know all the ins and outs of adjustments that were made by Clemson's defense and that sort of thing, but, but certainly early on there was, a, there was a physical dominance that was going on uh, at, the, at the line of scrimmage by Alabama, and uh, they were running that football, it seemed, at will. And, and even though from the very get-go uh, Alabama's quarterback wasn't necessarily you know, on fire as far as uh, throwing the football, and um, and it seemed like Clemson had done a, a decent job of containing him on the occasions when he ran, but it didn't seem to matter. They were so dominant at, at the line of scrimmage that uh, the, all they were going to need to do was run the football. But the, that uh, the adjustments happened, uh, changes happened. Of course, the loss of uh, Scarborough, the running back, at some point in the game also had a huge impact on Alabama's apparent ability to run. But I looked at the line of scrimmage, and it just seemed like there was a dominance there that was going to carry, carry the day for Alabama. But it, it, it kind of slowly but surely uh, was diminished uh, by a really outstanding effort by the uh, Clemson defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and uh, what struck me about it was that uh, Alabama really, in my opinion, should have run the ball more because when you look at the, uh, the stats – uh, Bama had 221 rushing yards, whereas uh, Clemson only had 91. But Clemson actually had 42 attempts to Bama's 34. Uh, and I know that they lost one of their 
best running backs there pretty in the second quarter of the game, which hampered their ability to do it. But even after that, you know, when they would run it, you know, they would typically get, you know, a few yards at least. Absolutely. And, and it's not like Alabama's running back core isn't loaded with incredibly talented running backs. And when you're dominating at the offensive line the way they were, uh, you could have put me back there and I could have had some success <laughs> running the football early. Seriously, they were they were blocking really well. They were getting the corner. They were sealing the edge. They were they were running right at them. They were doing anything they wanted to do, it seemed, early in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then uh, by the time I got there uh, – Clemson was starting to move the ball a little bit more against them, and uh, more importantly, Clemson's defense was starting to three and out Alabama a lot, and I think that turned out to be the key uh, difference maker in the game was that um, uh, Alabama's offense just started to struggle as they, you know, their quarterback would be passing it, and you know, uh, Clemson's secondary would be getting in there, getting pressure on him, you know, yeah. and eventually Bama's defense, even though it's you know this amazing front four. Um, eventually, they just got tired because they were out in the field for so long. Right, and and their secondary, which has been kind of the Achilles heel. If there if there was a weak spot in Alabama's defense this year, it was that their secondary wasn't uh, f- phenomenal in terms of coverage. That that there were times when there were breakdowns. Not that they didn't have great physical talent, because obviously they were you know having a, like a pick six almost every game. But but the fact is is that there were times when they obviously had some people running wide open uh, for Clemson. And uh, as the game progressed, it just seemed like uh, Deshaun Watson just got better and better at finding them. Mm-hmm. And those receivers made some incredible catches, as we've talked about already. Yeah, no, they're, they're number nine uh, there in the fourth quarter. I remember he made a couple spectacular catches that really caught my eye. Um, right. And what Another surprising stat was that um, – Clemson was 7 of 18 for third downs, which, you know, isn't great. You know, you'd want to be over 50 on something like that. But then Bama uh, was 2 for 15. So pretty yeah. much any time Clemson put them in that situation, they couldn't convert. Right, and that is an impressive stat. I would not have guessed that that were the case, certainly based on the early part but but the uh, early part of the game. But, but that is exactly what they needed to do. I mean, if... If you go back to our previous podcast, in fact, uh, Alex, and listen to what we talked about for what were the keys to the game for Clemson. If Clemson was going to beat Alabama, how were they going to do it? And basically that's what we talked about. We talked about the fact that they had to basically, uh, you know, stop the running game of Alabama enough that they would force Alabama to make their quarterback, their young quarterback, a thrower. And they were able to do that, uh, and they blitzed almost on – seemed like every down I mean they were coming at it and usually you do that you know you live by the blitz you die by the blitz but they were able to get away with it because they they kept that quarterback off target just enough there were some pass plays deep that would have been you know obviously big plays for for Bama but they weren't able to connect yeah well and you know I definitely think that that quarterback kind of showed some of his youth and experience you know playing against such a good defense and so as the game went on, you know, Clemson was slowly getting more momentum, slowly chipping away at Bama's lead until finally in the fourth quarter, they scored and went up for the first time in the game. Uh, but then Bama, you know, turned everybody on their heads by having a couple big plays and scoring real quick right after that and putting themselves back in the lead. And it felt like we might be in for a repeat of last year's championship game. Right. And, uh, and I totally agree. It, it just seemed like 
Bama was almost playing with some cards they were holding back, and they knew that if things got tight, they would they would pull those cards out, and they sure did, and it and it seemed to work. And you thought, oh, here we go again. This is the way this is going to play out. Alabama's going to have another gear here that they're going to be able to open up because they've been, you know, uh, kind of setting it up the whole game. Uh, but uh, but as it turned out, uh, you know, Deshaun Watson and, and those receivers, uh, you know, were good enough and made some of those spectacular catches you talked about to to basically, uh, you know, close the deal. And what guts from uh, the, the the coach uh, late in the game, uh, as, as as you mentioned, uh, you know, managing time the way he did. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Dabo um, with two minutes left, you know, still being and they got a good kickoff return to be fair, uh, but being very aggressive and uh, you know going running some plays and letting the clock run down and like it seemed like you know at first I thought he was like like not going for the win that he was going to just settle for getting the field goal and going to overtime, uh, but I think in his mind he was just being very cautious and trying to make sure that Bama didn't have any time left when they got the ball, if they got the ball, which is fair given how uh, dominant they were in that previous possession. Uh, and then, uh, as it turns out, you know, he was able to, you know, get into the red zone there with 20 seconds left and, you know, take a few shots, you know, and not have to use many of his timeouts. You know, he still had the one left over. Right. And and like you say, that, that maybe was his mindset was to keep that one timeout so he could pull the trigger whenever he wanted to 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 get a, a field goal opportunity if if circumstances dictated it mm-hmm. but uh it also brings out something else that i think uh, needs to be mentioned and that i believe will be one of the pieces of conversation about this particular game this national championship for years to come and that is is the the, the use of of, of ba- effectively pick plays uh, rub routes if you will uh by clemson particularly in the red zone there close to the end zone where they were successful on a couple of occasions with using that technique to uh, to get wide receivers open, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, at the back corner of the end zone, and that's a play that that has become very popular and is very hard to defend uh, when it's allowed. Now, uh, you know, read the letter of the law. If he's picking that guy, that's supposed to be a penalty. But uh, this rub route concept has has evolved to where as long as the the receiver does a decent acting job of acting like he was going to that spot for the purpose of a pass play uh, allows that to be quote, quote legal, even though the real purpose of his position is to basically pick the defender. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Uh, I I suppose it's kind of like how, you know, different refs will let like, will call like pass interference differently you know some some refs really like let let the boys be boys you know as it were and like let them really fight for it you know whereas others will throw that flag a lot more willingly um so it it kind of varies but from what you've been saying that it's kind of been a general trend in the uh, in officiating that uh, that flag doesn't get thrown for those sorts of uh defenses Correct, exactly, and it's it's kind of frustrating to me as a as a guy who's a fan of of the rushing game and running the football that it's it's those kinds of trends that have kind of guided college football, much like NFL football, to more and more of a passing based uh, you know game rather than a run based game, and so I, I'm I'm not necessarily in favor of that trend or that that recent trend. Uh, and I and I hope that there's enough, you know, 
uh, uh, feathers uh, ruffled by this that maybe uh, there'll at least be some discussion in the rules committee about whether or not they need to revisit that rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one final thing about the game itself that I thought was kind of clever was that there at the end of the game, I thought it was interesting that they went for the uh, onside kick because um, they had been pooch kicking it the, like the majority of the game, and I thought that's what they were going to do was pooch kick it up high, you know, and so the guy would get it and immediately get tackled or whatever. But they went for the onside kick, and by darn, they got it, you know, right at it passed like right over the ten yard line, and they scooped it up, which kind of felt like uh, retribution given Alabama's onside kick from the last year's game. It, it really was, and 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 again, I'm going to say a little surprising. That it, it, I don't believe that Alabama's good hands team was on in that situation. Uh, you would have thought maybe they would have at least considered putting that group out there. There's always a special group of uh, kickoff receive that you have that's called the good hands team, right? Where you mm-hmm. put basically a bunch of tight ends and, and, and bigger wide receivers, let's say, on that front line when you're anticipating an onside kick. You want guys that have good hands uh, to be able to secure that ball. Yep. Um, uh, but uh, Alabama appeared not to do that. It, it was pretty clear they were not anticipating an onside kick because none of the Alabama guys seemed to even go for the ball. Mm-hmm. It was such a surprise. They all were kind of moving the other way, and then they were just stood there. You know, <laughs> It wasn't like anybody even really tried until it was too late. Yeah. Um, that, that particular play also brings up another uh, officiating point. You know, It was a game that, frankly, was a little frustrating. And, uh, <laughs> and being, in the, being in the Vegas uh, book probably made that even more uh, acute for me because people were freaking out about how long it was taking for some of these reviews, especially in situations where it seemed like Clemson was just getting some momentum and then they would have some damn review that would take forever and suck all the life out of the stadium and the momentum of the team and all that. And it just seemed like they were, they were doing everything they could to make sure that Clemson was not able to get in rhythm offensively. Right. You know, well, it was crazy. And then at the end of the game to have this ruling – and and I guess it's it must be by rule and I and I don't I'm not familiar with the rule I, I I'm generally pretty familiar with college football rules but this one I'm not because to me that should have the game should have ended there's no way that you can have a play and not have a, at least one second go off the play play even when someone spikes the ball in a situation where a quarterback is just taking a snap from center and spiking it uh, the that act of doing that usually takes two seconds right mm-hmm. uh, and in this case. They kicked the ball, had a recovery, and no time went off the clock. Right. Uh, once, once that ball travels 10 yards and is touched by either team, because it is a live ball after 10 yards. It's a live ball. It doesn't matter which, which team touches it at that point and, and secures control of it. That, that is a play, and it should have ended right then. Mm-hmm. How that clicked off, because uh, the, the play started with only one second. So mm-hmm. there's no way that that shouldn't have been double zeros game over. Uh, and, and so I, 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 apparently by rule, you can't have it end on that play. But I, I've never read that rule. I don't know what that rule says. And you can, you can parlay that circumstance to all kinds of other uh, situations. What if Alabama had recovered it? Would a second have come off then? Or would they have said no second? Right. It doesn't make sense that you could have a change of possession, an actual recovery or a, a reception, if you will, of the, of the kickoff and not have at least one second go off the clock. Yeah, it was it was strange for sure. I, my recollection of their um, 
explanation was that it was because Clemson recovered it and the guy didn't like you know pick it up and fall down he was like already on his knees by the time he like slid in and got the ball or whatever um so that they were saying that because Clemson got in because the guy got in that sort of way the one second didn't go off the clock but I agree with you I don't understand that that way of looking at it that doesn't make any sense to me I think one second should have gone off the clock yeah but it was I don't know. It was a, an interesting series of events there. Yeah, to end the game, and I agree with you. The that was something we noticed too was that the officiating crew was like, and I get it because it's the championship game, and you don't want to get there to be any you know confusion. But they were being a little uh, uh, over overusing their uh, review privileges uh, there. I, I would agree. Yes. Yes. So anyway, so let's let's talk a little bit, Alex, about the the implications. You know, obviously a great game. If you, if you didn't enjoy watching that game, and especially in that fourth quarter, the excitement of that, uh, what, a, what, a, what another great finish for college football. Mm-hmm. And the playoff in general, I think, again, uh, the, the, the format, the, the process of having the semifinals, all that stuff went, went fairly well. I, I think it was, it was uh, greatly disappointing that Ohio State uh, you know, laid an egg a little bit and, and wasn't even able to score a point in their game. But, but frankly... Uh, Clemson had played so well that uh, uh, you know Ohio State just wasn't up to the up to the challenge. Well, I think it was actually you know it was a good, very good that you know this this championship game turned out to be this entertaining game you know just in terms of the simple football enjoyment of it, but also for the perception of the playoff because the two previous games were not you know definitely were That's not true. entertaining games. You know, it was kind of lopsided. Right, yep. it was pretty obvious who the victor was going to be. Um, so I think it was good to have this sort of, you know, close game. And we talked about, you know, on the last podcast how, uh, and I did see this that it had lower, um, like a lower rating than mm-hmm. like a national championship has had since like I think since the Alabama LSU championship game was the stat I saw. Probably mm-hmm. because you know Clemson Alabama was the same two teams from last year, so that's not going to be right. as you know, interesting on the surface, but it turned out to be, you know, as you watch the game. Right. Well, and that's the thing is that, you know, there's still some I- issues to be tweaked. And I, 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 kudos to the, you know, the playoff uh, committee group because they are willing to make tweaks and make changes even as this thing kind of evolves as a relatively new, you know, entity. Uh, but they're, they've recognized that, you know, having the semifinals on the – on New Year's Eve has has turned out to be a bad thing for ratings, and so they're they're moving away from that. They understand that they've got to, to to kind of reclaim truly reclaim you know New Year's Day. So I think that that's going to be a, a helpful uh, change as we go forward. And um, and uh, and the the new conversation seems to be about uh, you know what it's doing to the other bowl games, meaning it's diminished and made everything else you know, uh, uh, less significant. And of course that's going to happen. You, you have a, a playoff structure and then everything else becomes less relevant. Uh, and back in the olden days, this, this goes back probably before Alex, you were even watching football when we didn't even have BCS or anything, you know, there were often er, uh, years where, where there were six or seven bowl games, almost all of them played on new year's day. And, and many of them would have some relevance in determining the national championship. Uh, because it was a voted on thing, it wasn't. It wasn't the one and two team playing. There might the number one team might have been playing, 
you know, the, the number seven team and the number uh, two team might be playing the number three team and the number mm-hmm. uh, uh, four team was playing the number five team. I mean, it was just all over the map, right? And, and so depending on how those fell and, and what the, two, the, the teams that were in the hunt had played previously, you know, a, a, a bowl game that was less relevant in terms of significance but became significant because the, the participants had played the other teams in the running. You know what I mean? And so comparative scores, the whole associative property thing, um, starts to come into play uh, because it was a vote. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Oh, yeah, no, and, no. I agree. And so all of that was made it interesting for all those different games. And now it's really clear there's two semifinals and there's a final and that's it, and everything else is just done as a, a pageantry. Right. And, and that's what led to the whole conversation about players not playing in the bowl games because they were protecting their bodies for their future NFL careers, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, and the strange thing about it to me is that, obviously, I don't remember that time when it was all decided by the AP and the coaches' poll. Um, and I know that the Bulls were definitely more relevant then, but that also created all these problems of, like, you know, having these polls decide who the champ is rather than, you know, having right. them go head-to-head. Shared, yeah, right. shared national championships, et cetera. Right, which is why we instituted the BCS uh, system to begin with. Correct. Which is the system that I basically, my whole time watching football, that I've grown up with, you know, until this playoff. Um, but the strange thing to me is that I don't remember hearing all this talk about how the Bulls aren't relevant with the BCS, even though it was the same situation there where the championship game was the only game that actually mattered and all the others, you know, were just for brownie points, essentially, in tradition and that sort of thing. Um, So I I don't understand why it's just now, of course, you know, there's, you know, more, two more, two extra games, you know, with the playoff, you know, and there's more stuff for the media to talk about, you know, and so I guess I can see why they've become a little less relevant, but it's not that big of a shift. Well, and, and you just hit on it. I, I think the I think the issue is now because they now get to talk about four teams that are involved in this playoff. Then uh, there's even less time, so to speak, uh, to talk about the other games. And so you end up having some very great traditional games like the Orange Bowl and the Rose Bowl and things like that that uh, are still phenomenal events, phenomenal games, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the Rose Bowl was a great game this year. Uh, but uh, um, they just seem to be less important. And, uh, and I, I think that that's what you know, the media types were, were, were picking up on. And they just need to have something to talk about. So I think some of it is them filling their airtime. And so it's something to complain about. They have to scrutinize and, and slice and dice you know, the implications of things every, every which way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But getting back to the overall... Um state of football you know kind of after this championship game where it leaves us you know i think your point about the uh, the the blocking um uh, the picking rather uh, the picking on offense you know will be something that'll be examined over the off season um and it's good i think for the health of the sport for alabama to lose that championship game and kind of you know slowing them down although certainly not stopping them you know they're gonna be right back in it next year i believe uh, but it, you know, it's not healthy for any sport for one team to be totally dominant, you know, for an extended period. So right. I, I was certainly happy to see uh, Clemson upset the King, as it were. I I was too, and I think a lot of other people are. They're they're kind of tired of the the worn out uh, storyline of Alabama, and and I think enough people know that that you know Nick Saban has been so creative about finding advantages, finding ways to do things, even as recently as this year where he. 
you know, hired uh, Steve Sarkeesian, who is a well-known offensive guru who, who had just recently gotten fired as head coach earlier in the season from USC and makes them uh, mid-season into a volunteer assistant coach type of guy, okay? Vol- not assistant coach, uh, volunteer, uh, I don't know what the title was that he gave him, but basically uh, he, he was working for free, uh, waiting in the wings, knowing, because Nick knew that uh, you know uh, his time with Lane Kiffin was coming to an end. And whether Lane had gotten a head coaching job or Lane had taken another job with someone else, uh, that was likely that those guys were going to part ways. So he already had his next offensive coordinator, a very talented coach, already lined up and already in their coaching rooms, having conversations, connecting with the players, giving him even the option to do what he did with Lane Kiffin leaving uh, just before the national championship game. No other team would have had the benefit of a talent like Steve Sarkeesian sitting in the wings already connected with what was going on with the team and the players and the relationship with the, with the quarterback to be able to step in and do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's one example. And then also using uh, NFL players uh, and ex players mm-hmm. for practice to give even better looks to, to be using ex players who were just out of the NFL or whatever. Uh, so that, so that his team can have the best possible look instead of using the traditional scout squad, which is made up of your freshmen and sophomores, you're under, your your lower uh, your uh, depth chart is. players, right. right? I mean, just just doing all those kinds of things, and and of course the one that is my biggest pet peeve, which is the whole roster management thing that he has introduced to college football, that has uh, is a devastating blow to the uh, to the uh, amateurism of the sport. Uh, you, you, you know, he he moved us dramatically f- closer to full professional approach to football. You know. I mean, there's already enough people who are, you know, um, what do I say, uh, uh, brazen to the idea that, you know, the football players don't attend class and none of these guys, you know, are really student athletes and blah, blah, blah. I would argue that that's not true. I would argue that the majority of those kids do graduate from college. The majority of them end up not playing in the NFL and, and have careers and lives that go on. Now, were they treated very, very special and got all kinds of advantages? Absolutely. But to suggest that they're not student athletes is contrary to the data. Uh, but 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 doing the things that they do now with roster management makes that relationship between the student athlete and the in the university different. That commitment is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I I'd heard about the the NFL uh, practicing thing earlier in the season, and that was definitely an interesting thing. And I guarantee you, uh, you know, uh, starting next year, you'll see other teams uh, do that too. Well, Jim Harbaugh is probably already figuring out how he's going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a random question. This is something we had talked about on an older podcast about the um, the satellite camps. And I know that th- the NCAA did come down with some rules like limiting like the, the amount. Is that right? Or like the window in which you could do it? The window, yep. The window uh, of when you could do it. And, and I think maybe the amount too, but I think it's mostly about the window of time. And what they're trying to do is protect the coaches from themselves. I mean, what ultimately the message they got back uh, and their initial reaction was to, 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 to end them completely because it was, uh, you know, something that a lot of teams didn't want done, even though it's been being done kind of quietly and informally uh, for a long time. But then again, Jim Harbaugh made such a national um, prominent uh, story about it that, and then just kind of really pushed the envelope 
Uh, and, and it does really prove that you've got to get in front of the players. And if the players are in Florida or in Georgia or wherever, Alabama, then there's no reason why a, a coach like Jim Harbaugh or, or you know, Mike Riley from Nebraska shouldn't be able to go and have a, have a camp down there where he, gets, he brings his staff to the players because those kids can't, can't afford to fly to Lincoln, Nebraska or Ann Arbor, Michigan. I mean, that's a big commitment on their family's part to do that. So they went to them. I, I think it's completely appropriate, but, uh, uh, I think there was also a protect yourself, uh, or protect themselves from themselves because coaches wouldn't know where to draw the line. And so now you got these coaches who are already working 16 hours a day, almost every week during the season. And then they're, 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 uh, have crazy hours during recruiting all the way to February. And then finally after February, they get a little bit of time off, but now, Recruiting starts up like literally, you know, the day after signing day. There are the, the next class is already getting filled. It's it's that nuts. And then you got spring practice, so there's no time. And it used to be the summer was a time when they could take a week off and go fishing. And now that's being consumed by these remote camps. Right. So it's just piling on more and more. Right. So know. they got to protect themselves from themselves. Right. Right. All right, and now transitioning from the kind of the national talk into our uh, Nebraska-specific talk, um, this kind of surprised me. You know, you're more tapped into the Husker side of things, so you may have seen it coming, so to speak. Um, but I just looked on uh, the Reddit page like a couple days ago, and I saw that we had a new young defensive coordinator instead of uh, Mark Banker, uh, and that that kind of surprised me. Yes, no, I I got to tell you, I was a bit surprised too. I I did not see that coming. I, I mean, I know that. There was disappointment. There were, I was certainly disappointed in the late season swoon of our defense. Our, our defense's inability to tackle in the Iowa game, pretty much going back to uh, Ohio State. Okay, we, we, you know, we were an undefeated team. You go into Ohio State and you, you kind of get embarrassed uh, by Ohio State. Now, part of that was you, know, you lose your quarterback in a, in, a, in a kind of an ugly situation, a frightening situation, and, uh, and maybe the guys lose their focus a little bit and – and that sort of stuff. So you, you write that game off to just play in a, a team who is really on and who is better than you. Uh, but then as the, as the rest of the season unfolded, it just seemed like our, our defensive scheme and tackling and such uh, deteriorated. It just got worse. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so the, the, you know, Mike Riley was compelled to, to acknowledge that he maybe didn't have the right guy that was going to take us to a championship type of caliber. And so he had to make a very difficult decision. This was a guy that has been with him a long time. They have, they have been longtime coaching associates. So that was not an easy decision for Mike to make. But mm-hmm. it was pretty clear uh, after he made it, he had a quick plan to execute to go find a replacement. And it sounds like uh, this guy that, that he's gotten, Diaco, is, uh, comes to us with a, a pretty good uh, uh, reputation as a defensive uh, uh, coach and a, and a special teams coach. Um, and including a, a, a Bryles Award winner. He was, a, a, or a Broyles, excuse me, not, not Bryles, Broyles <laughs> Award winner, which is the, the uh, Assistant Coach of the Year uh, uh, award. And, um, and um, so, so he's highly regarded, highly respected, and young, so a uh, pretty good recruiter. So everything that you know, Coach Riley was looking for. Yeah, no, well, because on our previous podcast, we were talking about the our special teams guy who had been fired, um, right. and it, I think it's good to see that, you know, while Riley is clearly a very 
um, very nice guy and somebody who has loyalty to the people who have been with him for years. Um, he's also uh, willing to see where they might be lacking and where somebody you know younger who he's less familiar with might be the better option. Right, exactly. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, pleased with his willingness to do that. It'll be interesting to see how this, these choices affect our recruiting class as we come to these last. 20 days or so of the recruiting process and um uh it'll be i'll be anxious to see you know how we end uh this recruiting season because it's going to be a very critical one we've got some really talented players i think we've done a decent job but um we had some uh, very painful uh decommits that that kind of took us in the wrong direction particularly on the defensive side of the ball and now you, you, you boot your defensive coordinator, which always tends to create some doubt and some concern on the part of uh, recruits. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they can pull that together and kind of sell uh, the existing recruits or existing commits as well as some new recruits that, hey, we are going in the right direction and, and this is going to be a huge success for the Huskers. Right. Well, I did see that, and I'm probably going to pronounce his name wrong, there's a recruit named uh, Tyhone Lindsay. Um, who was uh, who was going to go to Ohio State? Who just recently has flipped to Nebraska, and he's like a top fifty ranked player, you know, by one of these polls or whatever. So he's very right. highly regarded. He's receiver. a highly regarded wide receiver, though. Yeah, so not impacting the defensive side where we have the new coach, but but yeah, I mean, we we certainly our coaching staff has identified some top talent. They've been willing to stay patient in going after them, while also recruiting guys that were basically. Uh, going to be the, the the second choice if those kids said no, and we've certainly had plenty of those those top tier kids say no to us, but we've also had some kids say yes. I mean, uh, our, our quarterback recruit was just uh, named Player of the Year in California, uh, and so there's some really great things going on with regard to some of the talent that's that's literally already on campus that have already come in as early entries uh, because they graduated a semester early. So. Uh, there's some good things going on there, but there are still some huge gaps. So we've got a defensive coordinator who who runs a different defense. He's uh, known for his 3-4 rather than a 4-3. So that changes up what you need at linebacker, what you need at defensive tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's going to change what our depth charts look like uh, because of that structure. Right. So, so who we need to go after in these last 20 days shifts a little bit. Yeah, I know. I read about that, that he had a different defensive scheme. Where uh, where was he coaching before? He was the head coach at, at the University of Connecticut and had been the last three years and had not done well. Got fired in December. Uh, but prior to his time as the University of Connecticut head coach, he was the defensive coordinator for Notre Dame uh, uh, from about 2009, I think, until 2012. Uh, and... Um, uh, included, you know, in that was uh, probably the best years that, of Brian Kelly's tenure. Um, and uh, he had been with Brian Kelly the previous year uh, at uh, Cincinnati when Brian Kelly was a coach for a year at Cincinnati before he got the Notre Dame job. And that Cincinnati team went to the Sugar Bowl uh, and had an outstanding defense that year. So uh, this this coach has, has been known as a darn good coordinator uh, for, you know, basically all the years. He's a young guy. And he was a young coordinator back then, and he's still young. So he's a, I think he's only like 42, 43 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so. uh, yeah, and that's – I think that's good just from the perspective of, you know, Riley and a lot of the coaches that followed him from Oregon State are obviously, you know, uh, older guys. So getting right. somebody who's younger on the staff is good. Right, right, absolutely. So, 
So it's it's exciting. I, we 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 now have two relatively young uh, coordinators that that are both going to be outstanding coaches, and either one of them potentially could emerge as uh, as a replacement for Riley if Riley writes the ship, has some success here for a few years, and then maybe decides it's time for him to step away uh, and put it in the hands of one of those guys. If either of those guys chose to stick around, I think uh, whether it's uh, Langsdorf or this new guy, um, uh, they have the pedigree and and the, and the uh, chops maybe to be you know a, a, a head coach and have some continuity, mm-hmm. which I would love to see. Interesting. So obviously this is very speculative, you know, and presumably if we got into this sort of situation, it'd be a situation where Riley has, like you say, righted the ship and you know, uh, made things better, you know, not us firing him. Uh, but do you think in that situation that our athletic director would hire, you know, promote from within rather than looking to the outside? Potentially, I think so, yes. If, uh, if, he, um, if he saw that we were moving in the right direction, that there were a lot of positives going on, and, and Mike, Mike Riley being as old as he is, you know, was, was ready to step aside and, and retire, um, that they would first uh, look to say, do we have a guy on our staff that, that could be that guy that would give us that continuity and let it let us continue? And I think we've got a couple of guys r- right now that would that would foot that bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is an exciting time. Um, I definitely think probably the next podcast we do, we should do one after uh, signing week and sort of talk about you know what our finalized recruiting class ends up being. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, and also we'll be talking about you know the basically a little bit more information about the state of college football. Certainly, looking at that recruiting lists is is has become more and more significant in today's day and age. And then also projecting what Nebraska is going to look like. It's going to be an exciting spring practice with new quarterbacks. Finally, quarterbacks that kind of fit Danny Langsdorf and Mike Riley's traditional quarterback target. Um, and uh, so figuring out you know who emerges as the as the uh, the, the likely starter because our, our young freshman uh, uh, recruit Gebbia who just showed up on campus will be obviously participating in spring practice so we're going to have you know three or four really talented quarterbacks fighting it out uh, for the starting job right well we should say supposedly talented you know because we had I blank on his name but that like five-star guy who went like won the big quarterback camp where you have like the nine best quarterbacks come or whatever right you know he came yeah. to us and then nothing happened with him you know right right yep something True. didn't click so you never know with these situations but like you say we have you know several options so surely one of them's gonna come through for us at least yep. well so between a quarterback battle and a new defense those are a lot of things for Nebraska fans to want to keep their eye on. So I have a feeling that Nebraska spring game, uh, given decent weather like we've had in recent years, will be a highly attended affair. Yes, even more so than usual. Even more so than usual, which is saying something since we usually fill the stadium. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's Nebraska for you. All right. That's right. So if you all out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can find us at footballthrowdown.podomatic.com. You can email us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com, or you can find us on iTunes. Just search College Football Throwdown. You can leave ratings and reviews there. We like hearing feedback from people or leaving a comment on the Podomatic uh, website for this episode works as well. Uh, So thank you out there for listening to us uh, ramble here about all this 
good stuff, the championship game and the new coach and all this fun stuff. Do you have any final words there, Dad? Well, college football throwdown. That's what it is. So if people can just kind of remember throwdown, that will probably be enough to, to, to get them to be able to figure out how to sign up. That's right. All right. So uh, this is uh, Alex Schmitz signing off along with Peter Schmitz. Go Big Red. Go Big Red. <laughs>